Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Yale's Whitney Humanities Center presents a lecture by Terence William Deacon, Chair of the Anthropology Department at the University of California at Berkeley. His talk, Adapted to a Symbolic Niche, How Less Became More in Human Evolution, is the third in the 2012 series of Schulman Lectures in Science and the Humanities. Well, it's an honor and it's a daunting privilege uh, to be speaking to an audience of uh, humanists as well as scientists. Um, as you just heard, this tendency to want to reach across uh, these disciplines that have been so far apart for so many decades, well, centuries in many ways, uh, I think is uh, it's a wonderful, shall I say, challenge. Um, uh, whether I'm up to it or not, um, I'm hoping that we're all up to it because I think that's the problem that we face uh, from here on out. The, the questions um, that you might want to ask initially, um, I'm a neuroscientist uh, by training or working at the, the lab bench in many ways, done neurotransplantation research, uh, traced in this indication, uh, this tracing of connectivity in primate brains that I was assuming in my PhD work of uh, a generation ago had something to do with the origins of language. Uh, one of the things that got me started on many of these questions um, was in fact reading the philosophy of Charles Peirce uh, and when a, a neuroscientist, evolutionary biologist dips into something as fertile as you've heard and as uh, hard to interpret but also as prescient as his work. Um, uh, it, forced me to think well beyond the bounds of my field, and it's sort of stuck with me ever since. And so, yes, I, I transgress these lines all the time, and uh, I hope you'll uh, excuse me for doing so again tonight. Uh, the image here it captures on the left uh, work that I did in my PhD work. The colors, this is a side view, so to speak, and a middle view um, of uh, the brain of a macaque monkey, specifically the cerebral cortex. And it shows in color code areas that are strongly connected to each other. So areas that are dark blue are strongly connected, areas of light blue strongly connected, and so on and so forth. Uh, what I was doing was trying to get a sense of what's different about the connectivity uh, in a monkey brain and a human brain having to do with those structures that might be relevant to language. And so these are all areas here in auditory regions uh, and in uh, motor regions and in prefrontal regions uh, that have been thought at the time, at least, this is back in the early 80s, uh, to be relevant to language. The surprise for me was, first of all, to find that I couldn't find fundamental differences, that the connectivity that I was looking at in monkey brains that don't do anything like language uh, were consistent with what we at the time thought was the case in terms of the connectivity in modern humans that are responsible for language. Corresponding areas, the architecture of the cells, and even the connectivity, the circuits that are crucial to this, seem to be similar. But of course we do something very, very different. Um, it's only after many, many years that imaging has developed to the point where we can actually now begin to look at the connectivity uh, in living human brains, which we couldn't do at the time. These were terminal experiments on primates, sadly for them, to the advantage of us. We don't do that to humans, thank goodness, or even to our close relatives. 
the, the apes. Uh, but nevertheless, now that we have tools that have allowed us to look at connectivity, what we have found, in effect, is that the connectivity matches what I had found back in the early 80s consistent in monkeys. So one of the questions that had prompted my thinking about language and its evolution is that how did these structures, brain structures, and connectivity, that is the circuitry itself, how could that common connectivity be responsible for such a different function? And that sort of set me on a course of trying to understand the evolution of language, but also how brains themselves evolve and how it is that old systems, systems that have been there for other purposes, got recruited for this absolutely novel function. Um, and it's more troublesome than this because um, whereas spontaneous vocalizations in you and I like laughter and sobbing or almost all the vocalizations we find in other species of mammals are controlled by deep structures, structures in the midbrain uh, and uh, deep parts of the forebrain but not in the cerebral cortex. What we find is that language not only uses the cerebral cortex to produce language but all kinds of areas of cerebral cortex now that we've begun to explore it turn out to be involved at various levels. And here's the surprise. It's a complex of systems that work synergistically. They all work together. They have to be linked up and helping each other in this task, even though every one of these areas basically evolved to do something very different. Um, none of these areas, quote, evolved to do language. There's no new structure plugged in that does this absolutely novel, incredibly complex process. The question is, how did this new synergy of old structures come about? A true uh, evolutionary conundrum. And then finally, the last question, which some people try to ignore, but we have to take very seriously, is a huge part of language is offloaded onto cultural transmission. Um, that is the vast, vast size of the vocabulary, the diversity of syntactical systems and so on, are transmitted socially, not genetically. Now we recognize the possibility that clearly we can do this because we have some distinctive genetic effects, things that have changed the way our brains work. But the fact that we have offloaded so much of this critical function onto social transmission is very atypical uh, for species in the world. Most of it is contained, in effect, internally and transmitted internally. Now Darwin recognized this as well, and he points out in this, this phrase I have here, I grabbed out of uh, the descent of man, a struggle for life is constantly going on amongst the words and grammatical forms in each language. Um, basically, Darwin recognized that there was a sort of parallel evolution also going on culturally in languages, that languages themselves are evolving, in a sense, parasitic to, uh, on us, but independent of us as well, in some sense. That is independent of any individual, certainly. What all of this has troubled me about is that we tend to think about these problems in what I call an engineering logic. We are good at making things, at analyzing artifacts that we've created, figuring out functions, putting things together, and so on. We tend to analyze our bodies and our minds um, in an engineering fashion. Um, and the engineering logic, I think, is well captured by this image on the left. Uh, this is this guy, um, this is a true story, probably the only man who received a Darwin Award and lived. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's because of this remarkable 
challenge he put himself to. Basically what he did is he got a bunch of, as you can see here, a bunch of helium balloons, tied them onto his lawn chair, um, and um, decided he was going to go up a little bit into the air and sort of observe his neighborhood. Uh, in order to modify this and bring himself down to earth, he brought one thing with him, a BB gun, so he could shoot some of these balloons and allow himself to go down. Well, the problem was, as soon as he untethered himself, he zoomed way up thousands of feet um, real fast and was terrified to use his BB gun. Um, and he gradually, this was in L.A., gradually went out over LAX and eventually was discovered that this blip on the radar screen getting in the way of flight patterns and so on and was, re, you know, was retrieved and brought down. The point I want to make here is that the way engineering works um, and the reason it produces these unexpected consequences um, is you've got to grab a bunch of parts that are out there somewhere or you make them or you modify things and you put things together. You construct things. And then, hopefully, it'll do what you expect it to do. The point I want to make is organic logic is, in many ways, just the reverse. And if we begin to think about the organic process in engineering terms, we tend to get things wrong. And here's what I want to suggest here. If you think about it, biology works in the opposite direction. Very seldom does biology take a bunch of separate parts and put them together into some new functional whole. It doesn't go out and grab livers here and hearts here and suddenly put them together and it works terrifically. What happens is the system starts out embryologically and evolutionarily already integrated but undifferentiated. And over time, the parts differentiate out of the whole. They don't get added to the whole to make the system work. Evolution has a kind of reverse logic to engineering logic. So, for example, when we analyze language, and I've often given my linguist colleagues a hard time over this, we tend to imagine that you've got these things like words and syntactic operations, and I need rules to put them together, and if I get the rules right and the algorithms right, at the end I'll have a sentence and I'll explain how it works. Um, but sentences are put together by organic systems, and organic systems don't start out with parts in some sense. So the sentences I'm producing right now, um, yes, there are parts that go into it, and those parts have preceded the sentences. And yet, the sentence is in my head before I've produced it, but not as a sentence. It's something else. We have trouble identifying what it is, a set of images, a set of senses that I want to get across. In one sense, the sentence differentiates out of this process over time. The undifferentiated intention is still there even though the sentence is now over, persists over a long period of time. We, we differentiate thought. This idea, way of thinking about cognition has, of course, been around a long time, appears and disappears in the literature over the years. Um, so, for example, a lot of Gestalt psychologists constantly were using organic metaphors to talk about how the brain works. What I want to talk about, of course, is how biology works in general. You need to keep thinking in these terms. And so that's basically what I'm after in this talk. So let me get to where I'm going with this. Uh, because what I want to talk about is why we're different and what has pushed us in this direction. So rather than sort of uh, regale you with, with you know, bench neuroscience, what I want to do is to sort of reach out across this threshold we've been talking about and sort of give you a sense of how I think the neuroscience and evolution uh, can give us hints. Um, many of these things are just hints and hypotheses, but I want to sort of throw them out there to get you excited and interested, hopefully. Um, 
So I want to focus partly on language, but I'm going to go well beyond it, though language is where I focused on it because that's one of the most distinctive features of what we do. Um, what I'm going to argue about the evolution of this capacity, which involves brains, is that once language-like behavior, and I mean something much simpler than language, um, way back in our past, once it became critical to hominid life, helping organize us, coordinate our interactions, and so on, uh, whether it even looked like modern language is irrelevant in this respect, but once it was there, it became what I would call an artificial niche. And as a result, hominid brains had to adapt to this niche. And they, it's effectively analogous to the way beaver bodies have adapted to the niche that beaver behaviors produce. Beavers have changed the niche in which their adaptations work. Some things will fit into that niche, some things won't. Beavers have become aquatic. Their bodies have been restructured to adapt to this niche that beavers produce. Um, what I want to suggest is that the cultural niche that we've produced with its ways of transmitting information and so on is as powerful and maybe even more powerful in terms of the selection that it produces on hominid bodies as they're evolving. And the result is, in effect, we haven't just evolved to an ecological niche. We've evolved with respect to a particular cultural niche whose structures and demands are quite different than those of just getting food and finding mates. Um, but it's the analogy to the beavers that I'm interested in. Now, I'm going to take you through some uh, various analogies to get the sense of it, first of all. One of the things that became interested, interesting to me as an anthropologist studying evolution was um, a particular curious thing that happened to us anthropoid primates. Um, uh, I have here uh, something that I think has vitamin C in it. Um, uh, who knows? But we primates are effectively addicted to dietary vitamin C. We are a very rare lineage of organisms that need to eat the stuff. Um, most other animals, most other mammals, with a few exceptions, um, can make it themselves. Uh, and this uh, phylogenetic diagram basically points out that uh, most prosimians are, what you might say, the ancestors we came from, uh, can make their own vitamin C. There's only one, in fact, that we know of that can't, the tarsiers. Um, but all the anthropoid primates, the old world monkeys, the new world monkeys, and the apes, including us, we need to eat vitamin C. There's a few other animals that need to eat it also. They are part of this hint. A lot of bird species need to eat something with vitamin C in it. Uh, fruit bats need to eat something with vitamin C in it. Curiously, guinea pigs do too. Um, I don't know, understand the guinea pig story. The question is, how did this come about? Uh, and what I'm interested in here is something analogous to a niche that's out there. It's a changed niche, that something you have done has changed this niche. And I want to ask the question, how it affects our bodies? Um, well, it turns out the first really interesting clue to this comes up in 94, uh, when a group of Japanese researchers looking into the rat genome identify the gene that produces the final enzyme in the cascade of enzymes that turns glucose into ascorbic acid, vitamin C. Uh, and they identified the gene. Uh, they named the uh, protein that's produced. Sometimes it's called GULO. I like to call it LGO, but it's this long, funny name in green up here. Um, and it basically catalyzes the last step that produces ascorbic acid. Um, interestingly enough, as soon as they found this gene, one of the first things they did is they tagged it and used it as a probe 
to look in other genomes. Specifically, the first one they looked at was humans. Um, it turns out that, yes, they bound this probe to a chunk of DNA in humans. It turns out to be what we call a pseudogene, a gene that has the structure of this gene that's working in rats, um, but is full of noise. Um, pseudogene is a gene that's no longer working. In fact, this one doesn't work for a lot of reasons. The main reason is what we call a frame shift. That is, something has been shipped out of it and every single part of the code has been changed so that it basically it stops itself from decoding. Uh, it's got stop codons in it. Here they are, these little stop signs. Um, we have in us, all of us, a malfunctioning, non-functioning gene for producing vitamin C. Surprising, isn't it? Um, why is this? Well, I think the answer is fairly straightforward. The answer is that our ancestors, in fact, had a gene, here it is, that produced vitamin C. We didn't need it. Vitamin C is a very powerful antioxidant used for lots of reasons. Um, and in fact, fruit uses it to keep its tissues relatively fresh for a long enough time so that animals can disperse it. So they got to put a lot of vitamin C in there to keep oxidative uh, metabolism from destroying it. Think about cutting open an apple and as soon as it's exposed to air, it uh, begins to turn brown. Uh, that's the oxidative metabolism messing, I mean the oxidative uh, process breaking down uh, the sugars and so on. So what's happening is that fruit, because it was dispersed by other creatures and had to sort of entice them, uh, had to keep itself fresh. Animals that get fruits are as a result increasing the vitamin C in their diet. Well, primates early on were eating mostly insects and maybe um, some gum in trees. And about the time that we see the onset about 35 million years ago of diurnal daylight foraging, we also see primates whose teeth begin to change structure to not look like insectivores anymore, um, look more like fruit eaters. Um, because they're in the trees, they're out there competing with birds, uh, who are mostly, before this, probably the main dispersers of seeds, primates began to eat a lot of fruit. Um, but if you're consistently getting a lot of vitamin C from your diet, then if a mutation shows up in your gene that makes vitamin C, but you're constantly su supplanting that by the stuff in your diet, then in effect, this mutation can be passed on. You can live your entire life till you reproduce and pass this mutation on to your offspring. And in fact, as these mutations build up and eventually produce a non-functioning gene, it doesn't matter so long as you're always getting enough vitamin C. Um, the problem is that you're not producing it yourself. You're getting it. It's in the environment. You've, in effect, offloaded um, this necessary metabolic function uh, onto your behavior effectively. That is, you have to behave in order to get it. So what does this mean? This means that if you're now competing to get it, competing with birds, competing with other primates, competing with other creatures, um, you may need to do things better. Um, so in fact, what's actually happening here is if you lose the capacity to do it internally, it now shifts selection on anything about your behavior, your digestion, your way of transmitting this stuff through your bloodstream, anything that makes it more efficient. What was adapted to one part in the genome is now suddenly distributed over the genome fractionally to anything that helps you get it. Um, in effect, what's happened is something that was simply controlled is now very complex in its control. They all can now work together synergistically. 
Um, let me just give you one example. Um, uh, color vision also shows up uniquely in primates, and now that it's been traced back genetically, we find that the duplication of the rhodopsin on the X chromosome that produces the three major um, cone uh, light receptive elements in cone, um, uh, basically it, it, it's the result of a duplication event in which each of the three duplicates began to wander, so to speak, in evolution. Um, they, in fact, uh, hide selection on each other. I like to call this masking of the effect of selection. Uh, and each one was able to sort of wander, so to speak, in function space from one that absorbed all the frequencies of light pretty well to ones that become less sensitive but as a result, at the same time, more specific in frequency. It turns out that this began to happen uh, right about the point at which old New World monkeys split off from the prosimians. Uh, we know this because there's one of these variants that's contained in all of these lineages, um, but when the old and New World monkeys separate off between 20 and 25 million years ago, uh, we find that the New World monkeys and Old World monkeys do it slightly different after this point. Um, why do I suggest this? Uh, this thing at the bottom is a simulation I'm actually not going to describe or I'll run out of time. Um, but what I think is happening here is this is just one of the examples of a function that has been offloaded. F birds who have been dispersing fruit probably since the dinosaurs or and since angiosperms show up um, have always, as far as we know, seen in color. And in fact, better than you and I, oftentimes with more cone receptors. How does fruit tell its dispersers when it's okay? Um, it does so by color change. And what's the best way to do it? Um, from green to something that contrasts strongly with green, uh, red, orange, something like that. Um, if you can only see um, a few color distinctions, mostly sort of variants of what you might call tan and gray, um, you're not going to be able to pick this out well. You're not going to compete with birds or, in fact, other primates that do this well. This is a function, one of the many functions, I think, that has been offloaded. Once we need to get this stuff, we need to be good at discerning how this happens. And all of us uh, anthropoid primates can also see and distinguish quite precise changes in color. Um, we become the only species that uses color, for example, to communicate sexually. Um, many, many primate species brightly colored. For that reason, you won't find this in other species of mammals. So this is a function that is effectively um, getting vitamin C. Um, we need to see in color. Uh, we need to have different kinds of teeth, slightly different digestive systems. We need different carriers for this molecule in our blood. All of these things have evolved to aid us in now producing vitamin C by behavior, by diet, and so on. Um, so in effect, uh, what's happened when something is offloaded like this is it masks selection. It allows things to wander. But as they wander, new synergies can show up. As they give up their old function, new functions can come in to take their place. Now, I'm going to give you an example that's a little more focused than this. And this is work that I've done with a colleague who's done actually most of the primary work on this, a man named Kazuo Okonoya. Uh, here he is down in the bottom right. And this is the study of um, a bird species. Uh, the bird species is called the white rump or white back munia. Um, it turns out it's a variant of finch. And the one that's been studied most is what's called the Bengalese finch. Now, the Bengalese finch is a domesticated version of white rump munia. 
this in Japan, where he began to study this initially, it's been raised in Japan primarily because it became easy to breed this animal for color, for diverse combinations of superficial color. He began studying it because in studying in the United States, he was studying birdsong and its organization in the brain. And so when he, found, when he went back to Japan, um, he found this species easily bred and studied for years and years, and people knew a lot about this domesticated species. Um, it was not bred for singing, it was bred for coloration. And in fact, its song is not all of that pretty, um, not like some of the songs that we, the birds that we do breed for singing. Um, uh, but here's the song of the Bengalese finch, domesticated for about 250 years, and the song of its ancestor, the white back or white rump munia. Um, if you look at this carefully, you'll see this is basically like a musical score. Uh, read it. This is time and this is frequency up and down here. And what you see is, um, if we look first of all, let's look down here at the ancestral species. The song, you'll notice, is highly repetitive. The song does not have a lot of variety. In fact, if you were to listen to this, it would not be a very interesting song. Things that are sort of gray up the whole line basically sound like ch sort of like that. They don't have a nice tonality to them. Um, the tighter the line, or if you run a bunch of parallel ones, they basically are tones, like sort of like that, uh, where you have multiple harmonics being uh, apparent here. What we see is that, that the tones have gotten more basic, uh, more tonal, um, and also less complex in many ways. And also, if you notice that there's chunks here, that are repeated in different ways and different combinations. And they're sort of juggled around. He became interested because this was a kind of like a sound syntax. You might, you might call it a phonological syntax. And wouldn't that be interesting to look at how that's handled compared to syntax in humans? So he began to study it, and this is one of the reasons I became interested as well. But here is the interesting story. Um, it turns out that one became the other as a result of Breeding for color, not breeding for song, breeding for color. And we have pretty good evidence that these guys were not bred for their singing. Um, how did this happen? It's, it's even worse um, because what it seems to be is that it changed two other things. It changed how the brain controls song, and it, it changes the fact that the, the, the wild species doesn't need to hear anybody singing to produce a normal song. It has to hear itself sing, by the way, uh, but nobody else. The domestic species will pick up the song that it hears. And so there's a kind of social transmission of song in the domesticated species. So the real question was, what happened here? This is a picture of a simulation we ran. I, I'm not going to go through this. We can come back and talk about it if you want to understand how this might have occurred. Um, but the main story that we think we can now tell is that what basically happened, if you look at a song that is very stereotypic and what follows what, um, you have sort of this is... Song, in, song element one. This is song element two, the next step. High probability transitions are heavy lines, low probability, low, thinner lines. If there's no line, you never go from this element to this element, for example. A song that's highly stereotypic has just a few very strong probability transitions and very many that don't occur. But a song that's very flexible in which elements can be in different places, can follow some and precede some, um, what happens is you have a very low um, diversity of these differences in transition probabilities. Everything can follow everything else, pretty much. 
Um, what we find is that that's basically what happened. And our simulation was able to show that, in fact, how do you get this? This is, in fact, where you take away selection for singing an easily identifiable song. It turns out, in the wild, singing a very identifiable song identifies your species compared to others. And that means breeding is going to depend on picking out the right singer. Uh, you don't pick out the right singer, you're in trouble. If there's lots of different bird species, you need to be very distinctive. But if there's no other bird species, in fact, if you're being bred in captivity, and it doesn't matter whether you sing or not, or what you sing, as determining who gets to reproduce with whom, then in fact the constraints on song begin to degrade. And one of the things that we've found is that, in effect, the genetic control of song begins to degrade. Now, what does it mean when it degrades? What it means is it becomes less specific. But here's a surprising feature. When you look at the brains of these two members of the same species, the white rump munia controls its song by having this auditory system and this motor system out. I won't go through the details of this, but just you'll notice that, in effect, it's a fairly simple system. There are very few forebrain structures. This is the forebrain of a bird. Quite different than a mammal, I should say, but uh, we can talk about that later if you wish. Um, in which the motor system uh, has basically only one forebrain nucleus involved. And the auditory system, as I say, you have to hear yourself sing, but it's not really distributed in many areas in the brain either. Uh, and what that means is if you damage various nuclei in the forebrain of the white back munia, uh, you won't damage its song. You won't disturb its ability to acquire song or anything else. If you damage any of these structures, you will. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but what about an animal that learns its song? That is, that hears some other singer produce a song. Um, in fact, if you damage any of these nuclei or any of these connections, it will fail to be able to produce that song, either in the motor side of things or in the auditory side of things. A huge amount of the forebrain now becomes relevant if you have to learn your song. Why? Because you have to integrate learning mechanisms, motor mechanisms, skill learning mechanisms, auditory systems, and they all have to be tightly integrated. If you have to learn your song, if you have to hear it and then reproduce it, you're going to have to use a lot more of your brain. But here's the surprise. That is, in one species, in 250 years of breeding, for color, this is the white-backed munia, this is the Bengalese finch. Um, many more areas of the brain have now become relevant to producing song in this domesticated species. Huge amount of its forebrain is now recruited to this process. So let me give you a kind of a simple model for how this might have occurred. Um, if you don't have to learn your song, but in fact, it's in effect innate, then what happens? What is innate? Well, it turns out that there's an auditory template, something that you are born with. You expect to hear something of a certain sort. You also have certain biases in what you tend to produce. We know this for two reasons. Number one, if you deafen a bird like this at birth, after hatching, um, it won't produce a normal song. It has to hear itself sing. In other words, it hears itself sing, and then it will eventually produce a normal song. We call this transition period subsong. It has a bias, however, even if it's deafened early on, 
What it does produce sounds a little bit like its species song, but it never develops into a full adult species song. So it has an auditory template, a motor bias. It begins by spontaneously producing what we call subsong, a close relative, but still a fairly degraded relative, of what a normal adult would produce, for example. Um, it then hears itself sing. It compares this, in some sense, to this auditory bias it's born with. It somehow assesses the difference, and then will sing a slightly modified subsong. And over the course of a few weeks to a month, um, this animal, typically you, you would think of this as a sort of adolescent about to become an adult, um, develops a fairly consistent adult song that sounds like the song that you expect from this species. Um, so it's a kind of a song acquisition program, you might think about it. It is not something that's automatically built in from the scratch. You have to hear yourself doing it. It's an interesting kind of a process. But these things allow the song to converge towards this adult source without having to sort of build in a precise motor program from the beginning. What happens, however, if you're breeding this animal in a context in which it doesn't matter what you sing, you will reproduce? What happens is, like in the vitamin C case, you allow degradation to begin to accumulate in the genome of this lineage. Uh, because it doesn't matter whether your song is highly constrained or not. So what happens when the motor bias weakens and the sound, the auditory bias weakens? Well, the same logic is probably going to go. The same parts of the brain are going to be involved in this process, but now it's a little bit different. Um, so you produce a subsong. It's a lot more variable in the Bengalese finch initially. The first songs that it sings are a lot more variable than the first singing that goes on in the white rump munia. Listen to yourself sing, and now compare it to your auditory bias. But wait a minute, no auditory bias. It's been reduced and degraded as well. What bias do you have in your auditory system? Well, you have been doing one thing. You've been around other individuals singing, or other sounds being made. But they're from a previous generation. This is now your auditory bias. You learn the difference. You modify your subsong. You produce a slightly modified subsong that's approaching what is in your auditory bias. Um, in other words, what's happening is you converge towards now the social song. Um, the same system, if degraded, um, actually shifts the production of song out of the genome, so to speak, and on to the rest of the social system. But this has an interesting consequence. That means any bias in the rest of the system that can now produce structure, can contribute to the structure of song, including your experience developing, um, can now become relevant to the production of song. In other words, these connections were already there, but they simply weren't being used for song. These systems already existed, but they didn't have any role to play in producing song. But now learning, now skill learning, now matching um, an auditory system to something totally novel, um, acquiring and remembering something in your auditory system, all become relevant to producing song. So simply by degrading something, um, not only does song become offloaded onto the social process, but more of the brain can become involved in this process. So effectively what's going on here is something like this, that song is transmitted genetically in the ancestor. 
In between this process, you've simply allowed this system, this system to degrade so that, in effect, um, mutations begin to simplify this system, eliminate some of the constraints that keep song within a narrow range, keep song from being purified generation to generation by selection against those who do it wrong. But in this process, it offloads the function onto developmental processes and onto learning processes in which transmission from generation to generation can play an increasingly powerful role, carry more and more of the load. Now, uh, if you've been following me so far, this ought to sound familiar. Uh, because I think it's relevant to what we're doing linguistically. So first of all, I've got these two pictures of the brain. These are showing basically those few structures in the forebrain that are involved in producing automatic vocalizations, laughter, sobbing, groans, and so on, but are also responsible for almost all vocalizations in non-human primates. When we look at how language is organized, as I talked about before, huge amounts of the cerebral cortex seem to be involved. And in fact, these deep structures seem to be playing a fairly minimal role in this process. So what kind of analogs might we see in the finch? Well, this is one of them, this shift from a few brain structures to lots of brain structures, structures that weren't doing anything with respect to vocal communication before this but now we're playing a significant role. While this system is degraded, we don't have all the kinds of diverse calls that have specific reference that chimpanzees have, maybe 20 or 30 distinct calls for distinct kinds of social phenomena. We have a handful. Count them on your hand, maybe laughter, sobbing, groans, shrieks, maybe, maybe a sort of a, a, a copulation call. Um, anybody who's watched the movie when Harry met Sally knows what I'm talking about. Um, uh, lots of primates do this, but we don't have very many of them. We're very few compared to other species. That system has degraded, interestingly enough. If anything, it's become recruited into language in our prosodic features of language uh, that give us a sense of, that we can communicate emotionality as, as we're also communicating reference. So what are some of these analogs to the Finch example? Well. In fact, our vocalization doesn't require specific emotional arousal. Um, uh, the phonological transitions, we can produce almost any sound next to any sound so long as our mouth and our vocal cords can do it. Um, vocal learning, auditory learning becomes critical um, where it's not critical for laughter or sobbing. Um, neurologically, we've distributed this function over large fractions of the forebrain that were evolved to do something different in our ancestors. Um, we've sort of offloaded it onto the forebrain, but we've also offloaded it onto social transmission, huge parts of it. And in effect, um, as I said, that these structures haven't disappeared, but now, in effect, rather than having 20 or 30 distinct vocal calls for distinct social roles, we are now incorporating it. It's, in a sense, subordinated to language. So there's a lot of features that I would suggest are analogous to this. This is a very different way of thinking about how we evolve this capacity. Most people would think that we evolved this capacity by some kind of incredible work that evolution was doing, pushing us in this direction, shaping things precisely. It's not what you'd expect um, under these circumstances. You would expect something more innate, more fixed, more controlled by a few structures. In fact, just the opposite has happened. Um, I think this is relevant to thinking about some of these broader questions. 
So one of the things that we can notice about ourselves is we're incredibly flexible. Not only have we offloaded this thing called language, we've offloaded all kinds of functions, um, social, cultural, sexual functions. I mean, what other self-respecting species would allow the social group to coordinate and negotiate who's going to reproduce with whom? Uh, if nothing else, what you do is you compete you know, with tooth and claw to see who's going to mate with whom and so on. Um, we've, do, we've offloaded it, but we have so much flexibility and plasticity, the kind of thing you'd imagine if we have a system that is basically degraded in its precise innate features um, and allowed lots of this kind of flexibility. Language, of course, aids it. Um, so basically, I would want to claim that we have, in effect, a de-differentiated system, in part. That's our advantage, um, not a disadvantage. A very interesting sort of difference. Um, so one of the questions I would ask here is that, you know, are we effectively a self-domesticated species? Literally, a degenerate ape, a species in which our genome has simplified. We're becoming clearer and clearer that, in fact, when you compare our genome to chimpanzees and rhesus monkeys, for which we now have good genomes, we have a lot more pseudogenes. We have a lot more genes that are unregulated, um, a lot of systems that are shut off or eliminated, um, uh, all kinds of things having to do with taste, with odor. Um, and we're just beginning to understand some of those that are dysregulated in the brain as well, including lots of receptor sites for, for neurotransmitters and so on that have incredibly differentiated uh, in humans. So my claim here is that some of the synergistic capacities we have that have allowed us to offload so much of this onto cultural transmission are not just the result of selection for something specific, but in fact because we have produced an artificial niche that, like the vitamin C story, like the domestication story, have allowed the system to de-differentiate. But the key to de-differentiation is that it allows more flexibility. It allows crosstalk between systems that have not previously been interacting with each other and can now produce new synergistic consequences. And those new synergistic consequences can now, in effect, be selected for their collective function instead of their independent older functions. So here's how I like to think about it. That in fact, once you offload some of this function onto this niche construction process, it relaxes selection on some features that allows them to degrade. But as they've degraded, sort of like the vitamin C case, you basically now need a new kind of selection shows up. If you need to produce this still, you need to now maintain that niche that you're now dependent upon. That means new selection that will maintain that niche is going to come into play. Going to distribute selection off of one aspect of human function onto other aspects, and in fact, diversify the control of that system, what we sometimes call, like to call metastability. Um, this will produce novel functional synergies. But in so doing, those novel functional synergies are likely to allow you to produce new niche construction. And so you get this complicated cycle of relaxing selection on some things, shifting selection on other things, producing these kinds of new synergies, and so on. So how do you want to think about human evolution? Both sides of the story are, are relevant. And in fact, in my early work, I was only interested in the things that were selected for language functions. Um, now I'm beginning to recognize that you have to look at both sides of the story. So here's a sort of simplified way to think about it, that early on what happens is that, in effect, selection is relaxed on these highly specific 
uh, ways of vocal communication. And other areas of the brain become relevant to this. But as they begin to work together, now there can be very precise selection on all of this synergistic function, this new complex. So you can imagine the Bengalese finch suddenly being released into the Japanese environment where they did not evolve, for example. But they now have a new capacity. They can socially transmit song instead of having it be innate. It could well be that there are certain adaptive environments in which social organization, social transmission of song might be a real advantage for this species. Uh, The synergy that's there because of degradation can now be re-recruited for something else. And that's what I want to suggest has happened with respect to language. And these are two images that come from my book, The Symbolic Species, in which I try to identify what is different about human brains. And as I showed you at the beginning, one of the things that I found that was not different is the connectivity doesn't seem to be different. Um, But there's lots of quantitative differences of of very interesting kinds. I won't talk about them in any detail today. I'll just send you back to my book if you're interested. Um, A couple of them stand out. Um, We have a remarkably expanded prefrontal cortex, um, critically involved in things like indexicality, pointing kinds of things, but also uh, controlling and organizing attention. Uh, and suppressing the tendency to do things spontaneously, to utilize our capacity to do sort of combinatorial analysis, kind of like multiple choice tests where you have to sort of weigh the alternatives before you act. Another thing that's really crucial uh, about us is that we have direct projection uh, from our cerebral cortex down to what's called the nucleus ambiguous, an area that we've been pursuing and studying, trying to understand for some time, um, that is controlling our larynx. It turns out that in all the other species we've looked at, there is no direct cortical projection to this system. And it's controlled mostly by indirect connections from midbrain and what we call limbic structures in the forebrain. Um, Why vocalizations are automatic in other species is because they're controlled by effectively an automatic system. Now, the larynx, it shouldn't surprise us that the larynx is controlled this way. Um, It needs to work effortlessly every time we swallow. If it doesn't close the system off every time we swallow, we could be in deep doo-doo. And yet, because we, one species out of all the the mammals we know of, um, are also cortically controlling this system, I'll bet everybody in this room has at one time or another choked on something they were drinking or eating. Um, Why? Because we get involved in talking. Um, or, or whatever, and we're thinking about our breathing and our talking and so on, and not thinking about our swallowing, and these two systems are now in competition with each other. And one system can override the other. It'll also override it in the other direction as well. If I'm talking here and somebody does something silly in the environment, I might break up, you know, start snickering, in which the automatic vocalization system is now in competition uh, with my cortically controlled vocal system. Um, These are positively selected features. The point I want to make here is you have to have the synergy first. You have to have degraded the system so that there's the interactions possible before you now can select for these novel functions. So this cycle of processes, I think, is crucial to who we are. Now, what do I want to end with? I've given you this whole neurological story about language and and co-evolution and so on. Um, This is, of course, a group that's interested in more things than language, so let me sort of broaden these speculations out, and let's go on into things that might be more interesting. 
because the point I want to say here is that the consequences of this aren't just cognitive. They're not just linguistic. Um, you can't change one thing in the brain and expect just one simple function to change precisely because things have become degraded in one sense and new synergies are possible, more flexibility is possible. A whole lot of other things have been dragged along as well. And I want to talk about those things that have been dragged along. This is one of my favorite book covers. This is from the book Why Cats Paint, A Theory of Feline Aesthetics. Um, uh, not surprisingly, it was produced in Berkeley. Um, <laughs> And here you see this cat painting, nice abstract painting of a bird, right? Um, what you're probably thinking is, how did they keep the cat from jumping out and grabbing this bird, right? That's what you're really thinking. You know, they tied its legs down or something. Um, uh, the, the book actually ends with a whole discussion of, of cat sculptors. Um, and anybody that's had a cat um, knows that their favorite medium is furniture. Um, uh, so you get a sense that this is a tongue-in-cheek story. The real question is, why don't cats paint? In fact, why don't most mammals have these kinds of aesthetic senses, perhaps? And what I want to suggest here is that we do in part because of this feature of our evolution. Um, let me start with a couple of examples. Um, I want to just get a general concept across, first of all. Um, this idea of juxtaposing things. And here I want to talk about it in two ways. If you juxtapose two linear patterns, like a moiré pattern, the kind of thing you see, uh, for example, when curtains are against other curtains, um, juxtapose these two but slightly out of alignment, and you get an interesting pattern. In fact, here I've extracted that pattern out. What's interesting is if you superimpose this pattern on either this one or this one, um, you also get the opposite pattern. So if I superimpose this one on here, I'll get this pattern exposed. Uh, the interesting thing about this juxtaposition of regularities is it produces new regularities that are the interaction. You might call them interference patterns. Well, of course, this is also crucial in our sensory system. We juxtapose slightly out of alignment visual inputs coming into our two eyes. And in so doing, we produce, in effect, this new dimension, depth. I mean, we're not really seeing depth. We're reconstructing depth. Um, but it's precisely by virtue of using uh, this dissonance between uh, the two inputs. Well, let me give you a sort of analogy to this that I think is relevant to this way of thinking about language and cognition and aesthetics, so to speak. Um, I want to talk about icons. That is, images that are like something and bring something else to mind. Each of these images brings something to mind. Mom and the baby, a baby and toys, and a marionette possibly here might be a toy. Um, we look at each of these, and what we get from this is, in effect, uh, brings something else to mind that we already know. This is not giving us any new information, really, except this is a, special, it's an in, a new instance of something we already know. But if I juxtapose them in just the right way, um, then something else happens. Um, this is the cover of the New Yorker magazine from some years ago. Um, look at it carefully. Well, if you look at it carefully, what's happening is you get this sort of giant baby with a puppet. But that's not just any old puppet. That's mom. Um, now, when you looked at this, um, it looked a little odd at first. But immediately, you look through it, is what I would say. You effectively see this. And it's not about babies. It's not about puppets. It's about something else. And here's my sort of reconstruction of what I think are the steps you would probably go through in this process in an instance. 
Um, there's a baby there, okay. There's a puppet there, okay. There's the joy of playing with a puppet, okay, I see that. Oh, hey, there's a mother. That's, uh, wait, 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 the mother's a puppet. That's kind of dissonant. Mothers aren't puppets. They're not littler than babies. Um, the, uh, there's this inverse of dependency. Mom's being controlled by the child, not the child controlled by mom. Um, and then, in effect, there's a kind of an absurdity here. This, this contradiction is an absurdity, but it's not. It's telling us something interesting that in fact mothers are allowing their infants to control their lives. Um, and anybody that's had new babies knows this is the case, that mothers are giving up their freedom to let babies sort of manipulate them and control them. But what I'm pointing out here is this ability to juxtapose these images in contrasting and dissonant ways allows you to see past it into something else. Um, and in effect, this is the way that icons, images, and indices pointing in juxtapositions and correlations can now allow you to see something even deeper, a whole general concept. This concept that you immediately grasp, but it's not there in the picture. Um, got a few other examples. Um, I won't belabor these at all. Um, the one on the left, of course, if, if you just saw the top half, you'd have one image. Just saw the bottom half, another image. But this is, of course, a reflection. Um, this is communicating something about civilization, about our current assumptions, perhaps. And this is my favorite one. I'm not going to play it out any if you want to come back to this a little bit later. My favorite juxtaposition like this, this happened just after 9-11. This was in a, uh, a magazine where this guy is out in his log cabin uh, cutting his curtains. And outside of him, there are these little sort of shiny objects. These might be flyer, fireflies. But this is his cut-up curtains. You notice it's in the, the New York skyline. And here he's cut the curtains out entirely, pulled them back. Um, well, at this place in the New York skyline, there used to be something big and imposing. It's now missing. Well, this is what's missing here as well. In fact, this remarkable juxtaposition here of not in the city, in the city, um, the presence and absence of the World Trade Towers, and so on and so forth. He's looking at this image down here. Um, artists can really take advantage of this capacity. But what I want to say is, in effect, what I call us as symbolic savants. Um, we have to learn language. Um, we've offloaded this function um, onto all kinds of social transmission processes. And as a result, um, we because we're now, in effect, dependent upon it, almost, you might say, addicted to culture, um, we have to have all kinds of adaptations to maintain it, to acquire it easily, to see through the surface, the superficial features of communication to what it means, what's behind it, what's driving it. Um, I think it's one of the reasons why we so spontaneously and so easily don't see these as superficial images. We're looking for the meaning behind them. This produces something interesting, and I'll end with just a couple of examples of this. Um, here's a kind of diagram I want to use to talk about it. Um, here is the image, supposedly. Um, this is a diagram that's taken from work that's sometimes called conceptual blending. Although I don't like generally this concept, um, I think it's relevant for this particular example. This might be the image, and it's associated with two different ideas, say mom and baby. Uh, and their relationship to each other. Um, but in fact, they're dissonant, and they have these relationships in which they're pointing to their opposite to some extent. Um, and what happens is that 
that brings to mind a new relationship that wasn't in either the baby image, the puppet image, or the mother image, the toy image, the play image, something else, a new concept. And that new concept is kind of, it's not just blending it, but it's something we've seen through. We see beyond the superficial icons and indices, the pointings and the images, to some underlying general concept. But with each of these ideas, there's something else associated with it. And that is each of them have some emotional features associated with it. Play has an emotional feature associated with it. Mother's caretaking, an emotional feature associated with it. Artifacts, controlling, has an emotional feature attached to it. So that when we bring these images together, we're also bringing together the background emotions as well. We're juxtaposing emotions that may not have had any reason to go together before. Emotional experience is also juxtaposed in the background. When we look at that picture of the baby and the mother, we don't just cognitively get it. It brings along a kind of maybe irony, um, maybe wonder, maybe disturbance, um, but an emotional experience that's more than just a typical emotional experience. It's more than any of those images would produce by themselves. It's the juxtaposition. And what I'm suggesting here is that this use of this particular tendency we have has, in effect, allowed us to produce emotional experience that's different than we might have had ordinarily. Precisely because we can manipulate these icons and indices and symbols, bring them together in novel ways because now they're not so tied to direct experience. Um, we are also, in a sense, bringing together emotional processes that their dynamics interact in the way that I talked about. Moiré patterns interact, producing a novel third kind of pattern. And what I just like to call these is emergent emotions. That is, I think we have a variety of emotional experiences that are very unlikely to show up in other species, but in which we are constantly involved in generating because we find them exciting and interesting and even informative. That our experience of the world is different because of this. Um, how can you get this kind of thing? It's in part because the different kinds of emotional states are controlled differently in the brain and because we redundantly represent them in our nervous system, left and right. Um, the positive emotions are typically associated with the base of the forebrain. Uh, orbital cortex, medial cortex, down low in the brain, uh, and areas of nuclei down low in the brain. One of them is called nucleus accumbens. So here we see an emotional correlate to some idea. Um, and an emotional correlate that's negative, uh, anterior cingulate and the amygdala, involved typically in emotional <coughs> negative experiences. But the problem is that oftentimes we're able to bring things like this together, divergent emotions that would tend to never show up at the same time are now not only showing up at the same time, they're interacting with each other. Um, they're, in effect, creating a new combination and what I call an emergent emotion. Um, in addition to this, language has brought something else out that makes us very unusual. Um, I won't go into the details, but there's basically two very separate systems for generating memories uh, in you and I, and in all mammals, in fact. One of those we call procedural. It's how memories are developed for skills. 
And memories developed for skills are developed by repeating something over and over and over again. I like to think about it uh, sort of like water running down a hill and carving deeper and deeper gullies. Um, that they become more precise. Water does at the same time more similarly each time it does that. When you learn a skill, you do it more similarly and you do it more efficiently. And you do it in the same way, the better and more skilled you are. Um, that can work to produce memory, to produce firm changes in the brain if you can repeat something. But what about what you ate for dinner last Saturday? Um, that happened once. However, you and I can immediately, as soon as I said that, I you know, urge you to remember what you ate for dinner last Saturday and even how it tasted, whether you were happy about it or not, um, how it was laid out on the table or on your lap or whatever, or in Burger King or wherever you ate it. Um, that's an episodic memory. You can't remember one-off things by repeating them, although eating dinner is something we've repeated. The specific details, you don't. How do you remember those things if you can't repeat them? How do you carve those pathways in the brain? Well, you can't. What you have to do instead is find all the correlates. You have to link it up with everything else. Think of how you just conceived of that, what you just did. You went back and you imagined, oh, dinner. Okay, yeah, now where was I? Was I you know, in town? Was I out of town? We use the associations to get back to it. The way this memory works is a different kind of redundancy. Not redundancy of repetition, but redundancy of connectivity. There's many different links that allow us to, in a sense, get back to it. The point I want to make here is that language has done something interesting for us. That when you learn words, you learn the rules, the regularities of a language. You're doing it by repetition again and again and again and again. It's a procedural memory system that's crucial to us doing this. But guess what? Each of those words is now associated with a general type of phenomenon, a general property, for example. And we can use the word dinner to talk about something in particular, especially if I lay it out in a complicated state. What's happened here is I've used a procedural memory system to access and organize an episodic memory system. Um, basically, a sort of semantic, symbolic memory system. You and I can do this because we have this mode of thinking based upon language and some of the other symbolic capacities that are around and associated with language, we can organize two memory systems with respect to each other in a way that no other species can. Now, does that mean that we do it differently than other species? The same brain structures are almost certainly involved, but now they have a new synergy. And that new synergy has produced something remarkable. That is. A procedural system is one thing after another after another in a very fixed sequence usually. But it's a skill that we do effortlessly without thinking about it. What I'm suggesting is this is our narrative capacity. We tend to think about explanations, about our knowledge, about how to control other people, how to control what happens in our lives in narratives, in a story in which one episode follows another episode follows another episode. We've, in a sense, begun to construct memory different in ourselves and in other species. And this is because these two systems have now been coupled by something that is transmitted socially, something that's been offloaded. But it provides a totally different kind of cognition that is fundamentally different. We now define ourselves by this self-narrative. 
I have my own history, my purpose in being, the meaning of my life I'm worried about. Um, you know, what, what's my prosperity going to be? What's, how are people going to think about my ideas in the future? All of these things are part of this incredible narrative structure that I am, in effect. I am a very different creature because of this in a very deep sense. Our identity is embedded in this narrative, and of course, uh, my narrative can now extend before my life and after my life. Where am I going with this? I'm going to skip this one. I'm sorry to do this. Um, this is, of course, also part of this unique emergent emotions because I can now create experiences. I can read a novel about somebody who never existed and find it heart-wrenching that they have this terrible problem in their life. I can find the tragedy so disturbing and yet so interesting um, because the emotion I'm dredging up is not exactly the emotion that that character is going through. That character is fictitious. But I can be totally involved in that life. I can, in effect, be educating my emotions in this process. The power of the humanities, I think, in large part, is educating this deeper experiential feature of us, having a world that's vastly larger than the one, the world that we're actually directly exposed to, but gives us the flexibility to sort of imagine this larger world. So what I want to say here, I'm, already, I'm now out of time, but I'm going to just end it with just a couple of even farther reaches so this is an obvious um, uh, hint as to what I think went on in the past. I think that this, this origin story might not be too far from the truth. What did we gain in this apple that we basically found out there in the world? Where did it come from? It came from the serpent, uh, the reptilian uh, source, right? And what did it give us? It gave us knowledge of good and evil. What I want to suggest is, of course, to think in those terms requires this kind of a mind. Good and evil are not in the world before human beings are out there. But good and, the, good and evil are in the world now. And they're in the world in part because we gained this symbolic capacity, this capacity to construct other experiences, the experiences of others in the consequence to my behavior, even how my future generations might, in effect, be responding to the fact that I'm part of this group of using up all the resources in the world so that 10 generations from now there won't be certain resources. I can feel bad about that. I can feel morally responsible about that. Let me end in this, the following example. We have a cognitive bias that's associated with this. In order to do this well, we have to be able to take in certain things. We have to be able to see beyond the surface like I've showed you in these couple of examples, to immediately look beyond the surface of things. But what I want to say is that this is necessary to learn symbols, to learn language. For every word I'm saying, you're not listening to the sounds. You're immediately seeing beyond them. The sounds are just this superficial thing out there that helps you get to the meaning. Well, I think that this has actually changed the way everybody in the world looks at the world itself. We look at the world as though it's symbols. So instead of this thought, when somebody explains something to me, this linguistic description is incredibly impoverished. There's nothing of that image there. But in fact, 
one of the things that happens in this process is that I can use that image to reconstruct in my own mind with my own mental images, sort of what was being talked about there. I'm seeing through the surface to the meaning, to the significance, and why I'm being told this thing, the, the usefulness of it maybe, the importance of it. I have this tendency to see beyond the surface of things, to want to see beyond the surface of things, to see the surface as just representing something else. What does that say about the world? Well, what it says is when I actually look at the world, I'm probably also doing the same thing. A coincidence shows up in my life, and I think there must be a meaning behind this. Something meaningful about the way the world works. But we're being told by physicists and biologists, there's no meaning out there. It's sort of dead stuff. You know, the world is just careening on without any purpose. Well, yes, that's true. But we constantly, constantly are looking for the meaning. We're seeing the surface as representing something beyond. And what I want to suggest is that we're constantly, I think spontaneously, seeing the world as a symbol. Seeing things that happen in the world as meaning something, even if in a physical sense they might not be. But that means we're, in effect, constantly living in what I call a bilayered world. A world in which the meaning is just beyond the surface. And if I could only get to that, the, the meaning of life, the meaning of this moment in history, um, the meaning of life and death itself, then, in effect, I really know what this is about. This is just the surface stuff. And there's a sign. It's a sign about something else, this other world. And I think, in part, that's what we do in terms of religion, in terms of magic, in terms of just everyday thinking about coincidences. So I want to suggest that we're symbolic savants. A savant is someone that can't help but do something, but do something remarkable. And I think we can't help but see the world symbolically. We can't help but look beyond the surface. We can't help but look for the meaning behind things. We're irresistibly, perseveratively seeking this hidden logic, the meaning behind the appearances of the world. Here's one of my favorite examples of it. These are two women, as I say down here in the bottom, from New Guinea, rolling in the mud. They're rolling in the mud because it's a funeral. Their husband, their co-wives of the same man, who has just died in this case uh, with a skirmish, in a skirmish with a neighboring group, they roll in the mud so that their husband's ghost won't smell their body and become sexually aroused and follow them back to their hut at the end of the day. Because if a ghost follows you back to your hut, um, then in fact it will bring bad luck and disease with it because ghosts are from the other world, the dead world. Um, this world is there for so many people. It's critical, but it's part of this incredible capacity we have that we can't help but express. So with that, I'll leave you. Thank you very much. This lecture was presented as part of the Distinguished Shulman Lectures in Science and the Humanities, established to honor Robert Shulman, Sterling Professor Emeritus of Chemistry and Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry, for his unwavering support for the integration of science and the humanities. The 2012 Shulman Lectures are organized in conjunction with the Yale College Seminar, Music and Human Evolution, taught by Gary Tomlinson, Professor of Music and Humanities. 
Professor Deacon spoke on March 27, 2012 at Yale's Whitney Humanities Center.